0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. With a capital B, capital T and a capital UK, or emailing me at info at co dot uk. Now on with the show. <laughs> i'll be talking about today occurred in the year 1881 but what else happened that year well on march the 12th andrew watson of glasgow's queens park football club who was of mixed scottish and british Guinean background captains the scotland national football team in a 6-1 victory against england becoming the world's first mixed-race international association football player The Four Dead in Five Seconds Gunfight was a famous gunfight that occurred on April 14th, 1881 on El Paso Street in El Paso, Texas. Witnesses generally agreed that the incident lasted no more than five seconds after the first gunshot, though a few would insist it was at least ten seconds. Marshal Dallas Stodenmauer accounted for three of the four fatalities with his twin 44 caliber Smith & Western revolvers. The 18th of April saw the opening of the National History Museum in London, which is featured in many films, most recently Paddington. And in literature, Robert Louis Stevenson's children's adventure novel Treasure Island begins serialisation in Young Folks on the 1st of October as by Captain George North. And in fiction, well, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John H. Watson first meet at Bart's Hospital London prior to the events narrated in Conan Doyle's A Study in Scarlet, released in 1887. But today I'll be telling you about an event that occurred on the 19th of January, 1881, during a ferocious storm in Robin Hood's Bay, in North Yorkshire.
1: Word of the Week
0: And this week's word is... Snicket, which is a Yorkshire term for alleyway. And another one I liked was weather, which is Yorkshire for anything above 8 degrees centigrade. Should you go to Robin Hood's Bay, and I suggest you do because it's absolutely lovely, at the top there's a plaque which tells the story of a heroic rescue that took place on the 19th of January 1881 when a collier brig, the Visitor, foundered in a violent storm whilst carrying a cargo of coal from Newcastle to London. The vessel was actually registered at Whitby and locally owned, but she was old, having been built in 1823 in Sunderland. She had sailed as far south as Flamborough, but a south gale prevented further progress, tearing the sails to shreds and driving her back up the coast, past the cliffs of what is now known as Ravenscar, although in those days it was called Peak things got worse, as she took on more and more water through the night. The master of the ship tried everything, even setting down the anchor, in the hopes that it might help them ride out the storm. But the weather was truly evil. The waves were breaking over the deck, and the crew of six attempted to save themselves by taking to the ship's boat but were hesitant to leave the comparative shelter of what was by now a wreck for fear of being driven onto the unforgiving rocks beneath the cliff. Dodd, the apprentice, was wet through and frozen, having jumped into the sea and swum to the boat roped to a buoy to be pulled into it by the other crewmen. And this is where they spent the bitter winter night in conditions beyond imagination. It was the discovery of the brig's quarterboard on the beach at Robin Hood's Bay that alerted the people that there was a shipwreck. And so, as morning broke, the alarm was raised. The crew of the visitor couldn't venture ashore, though, through the surf because Robin Hood's Bay has treacherous rocks and only the most foolhardy would think of landing here in a storm. A local man could stand a chance, but these men chose to stay just offshore. Here they struggled against mountainous seas and snow blizzards. The six men, in their life-threatening predicament, could just be seen from land two miles to the south of the village. The bay lifeboat, though, was old, and the local fishermen, who were its crew, regarded it as unseaworthy for launching into such mountainous seas. A decision that was confirmed on closer inspection. A solution needed to be found. And fast. With the weather so bad, the urgency to reach these men and rescue them was building. Scarborough was contacted. Commander Grant received a telegram asking for assistance with the boat wrecked at Robin Hood's Bay but the tugs were all aground in the harbour at the time, making launch impossible. A telegram was sent to Captain Gibson, harbourmaster at Whitby, as well as the Whitby branch secretary of the Royal Naval Lifeboat Institution, or the RNLI. The telegram was from the Reverend Jeremy Cooper, Vicar of Filingdales, who asked for a lifeboat to be sent out as... A ship was being wrecked and the crew, who had taken refuge in the long boat, were astern of the ship, off at sea, outside the heavy breaking waves and unable to land on account of the fearful surf. Captain Gibson immediately tried to launch the lifeboat, the Robert Whitworth, but because of the prevailing winds, it was impossible a tugboat couldn't be launched because it would have been severely damaged or even destroyed by the weather. So along with the first and second coxswains, Henry Freeman and John Storr, the momentous decision was taken to haul the boat the six miles over land to Robin Hood's Bay. (laughs)
1: Word on the street.
0: Seeing as our story takes place in Yorkshire, I thought I'd do a street in Yorkshire, York in particular, which has the shortest street with the longest name that's baffled both tourists and residents alike. It's called Whipmer Wapmer Gate, and its original name was Whitnor Watnorgate, Gate, and is first mentioned in 1505, which referred directly to its length of only 35 metres and meant neither one thing nor the other. After the 16th century, the street's name was corrupted after it became a place to flog petty criminals and where the city's stocks were located, which could be how the whitmer Wotmer park came into usage. The suffix's gate is, like many other York streets of Viking origin, from the Norse word for street, gata. Nowadays, it is to be found on many tourist postcards and photographs. <laughs> So began the epic six-mile journey over the moors to Robin Hood's Bay from Whitby, with the road climbing steadily to an elevation of over 500 feet, followed by a steep drop down to sea level. Not only that, but the whole country was, at the time, suffering from severe winter weather, hard frosts and blizzards. It meant many roads were blocked with huge snowdrifts. The lifeboat was mounted on her carriage, and all the lifeboat's crew and close relatives headed off along the Scarborough Road. This powerful team of horses carried the lifeboat up the hill, but the treacherous winds and snow blizzards made this difficult. Yet, the men of Whitby were not to be beaten. They used shovels, horses, cows and anything useful along the way, tearing through hedges that blocked their path. They were helped by Bayman, who cleared the path from the Robin Hood's Bay side. The epic journey built up momentum, with farmers turning out to help. They actually met two people coming the other way, urging them to turn back because of the blizzard. And so, three hours after they set off, They had made it to Robin Hood's Bay. When they reached the top of the steep hill into the bay, a huge cheer was heard. Over 200 men had helped clear the huge six-foot snowdrifts. Some of these were the lifeboatmen themselves. The way down to the launch site in Robin Hood's Bay is very steep and twisting, making it difficult and dangerous But they made it, with the helpers, controlling the descent by means of ropes attached to the boat's carriage. And as she rounded the double bend by the Laurel Inn, there was barely an inch and a half to spare. Next, the lifeboat had to be lowered down the cliff, and once this was achieved, the expectant crowd waited the rescue. They watched the boat bob up and down, yet the first rescue attempt was a failure. Six oars were broken and they were replaced with oars from Robin Hood Bay's lifeboat. The Newcastle Courant of Friday, the 21st of January, 1881, reports.
1: Such a feat is unknown in the annals of lifeboat enterprise. On arrival at Robin Hood's Bay, the boat was immediately launched into the surf. The longboat containing the crew of the sunken ship being then a mile out to sea. The lifeboat had not been out long before she was struck with a tremendous sea and hurled back onto the beach. Some of the men being stunned and six of the oars broken.
0: A second attempt was made, which was a success. But this was only because a bayman, John Skelton, waded out into the lifeboat and guided the boat safely through the surf. That local knowledge was needed as he piloted the boat through a narrow channel. It was an exhausting and traumatic event for those rescued. They were so numb with cold that they didn't realise that they had been rescued. They had virtually given up all hope. But the crowd made up for this. A thousand or so people who had helped clear the way in virtually the whole of Robin Hood's Bay erupted in excitement as the epic rescue was completed. The whole dramatic rescue was completed by mid-afternoon on the Wednesday and thankfully all six of the unfortunate men were saved. This rescue could claim to be the most epic and heroic ever in lifeboat history. Robin Hood's Bay and Whitby both treasure the story and although normally these type of rescues only involve a few brave men it's worth noting that this one involved so many more those who were clearing the roads of snow, forcing down walls and hedges to make a path for the lifeboat. This rescue involved farmers and indeed children who all helped in some small way clearing the path. They felt a part of this heroic rescue. One of the lifeboatmen from Whitby, Henry Freeman, was quite famous. He served for many years and this rescue proved to be the height of his fame. He was the sole survivor of the 1861 lifeboat disaster due to the fact that he wore a cork life jacket. He was the coxswain of the Whitby lifeboat. And the life jacket in question was a sample that was sent, and he just happened to be the one who got to wear it. Several days later, once the storm had gone, the lifeboat crew walked the six miles from Whitby back to Robin Hood's Bay and rowed the Robert Whitworth around the coast back to Whitby Harbour. And later that year, the RNLI provided Robin Hood's Bay with a 32-foot self-righting lifeboat, the Ephraim and Hannah Fox, together with a brick lifeboat house in the dock which stands to this day. It bears record of all the rescues carried out by the station until closure in 1931. just heard was the tale of a successful rescue. Unfortunately that wasn't always the case. Just four days before, on Saturday the 15th of January 1881 there was a northern gale with heavy seas and blinding showers of snow. At 10.30 a ship was spotted two to three miles out at sea and
1: the signal gun was fired from the battery and hundreds of inhabitants turned out.
0: The up Gang lifeboat, just one mile north of Whitby, was launched to help save the vessel, which was stuck on dangerous Upgang Rock. The lifeboat attempted to throw a line to the vessel, but failed. The Mercury newspaper continues.
1: The waves broke over the vessel, and as she began to break up, the crew lashed themselves to the rigging. Their voices were heard distinctly above the storm. After the lifeboat had been exposed to the storm for nearly two hours without being able to render any assistance, A heavy sea broke over and half filled her with water.
0: Attempts at rescue were called off. Another Whitby lifeboat, the Robert Whitworth, was launched by coxswain H. Freeman. The Mercury says...
1: As she approached the vessel, the red light suddenly went out, and at the same time, a blue light was seen on the shore at Upgang. The men on the Whitby boat mistook the extinction of the lights on board the vessel as a sign that the crew had been safely rescued and that the last man on quitting the ship had extinguished the danger lights on board, the Whitby lifeboat accordingly put back. The ill-fated ship's crew perished as their vessel broke up at midnight. Their expiring cries were heard on the shore. At daylight on Sunday, only a few vestiges of the wreck were visible.
0: The ship was later identified as the Brig Lumley of South Shields, carrying a cargo of coal. Her crew of ten all perished. Do you love true crime, but are looking for something different? It sounds like a sitcom. It does. The kind of assholes, you should probably leave them alone. Do you like learning about cases so off the wall they can't possibly be true?
1: Her wig is enormous, but it is lifted
0: off her head by a monkey. Do you love history but want to hear about what they didn't teach you in school? It's just got a homeless where you hang your horns sign. <laughs> Do you like laughing awkwardly about cases that are bizarre and a little strange? They'd be able to wield so many knives with all of their little arms. <laughs> Then we have the podcast for you. Join me, Lindsay. And me, Madison, for Ye Old Crime. Where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. Listen every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. In the news today. A man from Bristol has admitted that he was addicted to the hokey-cokey, but he's turned himself around.
1: Back in the day, facts.
0: Let's start off with the first of April, 1873. When the White Star steamer SS Atlantic sinks off Nova Scotia, killing 547 in one of the worst marine disasters of the 19th century. On the 2nd of April 1801, in the Battle of Copenhagen, part of the French Revolutionary Wars, a British Royal Navy squadron defeats a hastily assembled smaller, mostly volunteer Dano-Norwegian Navy at high cost forcing Denmark out of the Second League of Armed Neutrality. Also on the 2nd of April in 1989, Madonna's Like a Prayer premiered on a worldwide Pepsi commercial. The 3rd of April 1933 saw the first flight over Mount Everest, the British Houston Mount Everest flight expedition, led by the Marquis of Clydesdale and funded by Lucy Lady Houston. The 6th of April 1992 and the Bosnian War begins. It would end on the 14th of December 1995 with over 101,000 dead, mainly Bosniaks. The 7th of April 1955 and Winston Churchill resigns as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom amid indications of failing health. On the 8th of April 1838, Brunel's SS Great Western left Avonmouth in Bristol for America with seven passengers on board for its maiden voyage. And lastly, on the 9th of April 1945, during World War II, the German heavy cruiser Admiral Scheer is sunk by the Royal Air Force. I'm afraid that's it for today's show, but don't worry, I'll be here same time, same place next week. And I'd like to take the opportunity to thank those that brought the story to life. And this week we had Joe Wilson and Molly Jeffries from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me you can find me on twitter or facebook by looking up at backtracker uk with a capital b a capital t and a capital uk i also occasionally post onto tiktok and instagram so do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows as a small independent podcaster your help and support is always appreciated one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about the show is regularly released on mondays so until next time guys take care and look after each other